Welcome to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast once again, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm your host, Ivan Mawadire. I'm a pastor from Zimbabwe where I was jailed and tortured for mobilizing millions of people to demand better governance. In each of our episodes, we navigate the stories of people who faced brutal oppression, yet they still maintain hope and strength. From their stories, we figure out how to navigate our own life journeys as we go to school, raise our families, and pursue the things that bring meaning to us. If you've never run from something that you feared, and I mean literally run from something like a dangerous animal or an attacker, you don't know what it feels like to finally find a way out. You know, so many people spend their lives running from all sorts of things, real or imagined. For some, it's debt, death, poverty, the unknown, rejection, or even a horrible past. Whatever we're running from, when do we find the escape? When are we finally relieved that we got away and that whatever it is that was chasing us is never going to get us? I spoke with Nuri Turkel, a man with a story for which he wrote a memoir entitled No Escape. Nuri is a Uyghur by birth. Uyghur is spelled U-Y-G-H-U-R. And if you know anything about the Uyghur people, you'll know that right now, as we speak, they're being hunted down and herded into concentration camps in China. You might even be shocked, as I was, that you and I may be helping their oppression. As usual, you want to stick around for this one. Nuri, thank you so much for joining us here on the Frontlines of Freedom podcast today. It is a huge honor to talk to you and to uh, just hear about your personal story. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I, I want to get straight into it. Nuri Tekel, you are a Uyghur and a lot of people don't know about Uyghurs. And I want to ask you, first of all, when you say I am a Uyghur, what are you referring to? What nationality is that? Or what, what, what part of the world is a Uyghur from? I still believe that a lot of people don't know about the Uyghurs, that Uyghurs are Turkic people, predominantly reside in a Chinese-occupied uh, territory known, in, known to public uh, by its official name, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Uyghur people like to refer to their homeland as East Turkestan, significant uh, historical and uh, political reasons. East Turkestan is the name that the Uyghur forefathers used to establish two short-lived republics, first time in 1933, second time in 1944. The first one, very short-lived. The second one was uh, established with the help of the Soviet Union, Stalin's Soviet Union, and also uh, destroyed uh, with the help of Stalin's Soviet Union, Soviet uh, regime essentially delivered Uyghur's homeland on a silver platter to uh, Mao's communist China. So um, that's uh, because of that uh, history, because of the geographical reference of that name referring to the larger Turkic um, homeland in Central Asia known as Turkestan, Uyghurs love to call their homeland as Turkestan, East Turkestan. Xinjiang is a colonial name. Colonial, uh, Xin means new, uh, Jiang means territory. It's a, it's a colonial name, which is new territory by its literary translation. So the communist uh, regime took over the homeland and then renamed it to Xinjiang. 
it, it explains why. The Uyghur population is about 12 million based on the government estimate. The worldwide Uyghur community, uh, Uyghur population exceeds about 20 million. They pre predominantly live in Central Asia, Western Europe, North America, and, and parts of the Middle East. Nuri, I wanted to, to get that background because I think it's important for people to understand the story that you're about to tell us. When you were born about 50 years ago, 1970, you were born under a set of circumstances that is not very normal. You were born in, in what is called a re-education camp, but essentially it's a concentration camp. Would you want to just tell us about how, how that happened when you were born? I, I believe your mom, I think, was in her second trimester when she was taken into the concentration camp. Thank you. So I was born in uh, a re-education camp during the height of China's tumultuous uh, cultural revolution. I spent uh, the first uh, several months of my life uh, in a, a detention facility, which resembled a Soviet-style gulag. Uh, my mother was detained when she was uh, in her second trimester. This simply because of my mother's relationship or being a daughter of a Uyghur nationalist that the Red Guards uh, had a problem with. And while this was happening, they sent my father to a labor camp to perform agricultural labor. So, you know, the Uyghur people, back to uh, how this started, as far as I've been, I remember, um, I started my life in such a, a horrific circumstances. And now in year 2022, we're still having a similar type of conversation. The reason that I mentioned this uh, and the reason that I've been telling this story to people, uh, whatever the platform that I use, uh, including uh, my recently published book, No Escape, to illustrate that what the international community learned today is not something new. Uh, this has been an ongoing uh, repression uh, with different type of justification and different type of label. So the slavery is back, you know, especially um, African-American community can appreciate this. Uh, there's a concept, the historical concept called uh, cotton trade uh, that is back in China. So they're using the Uyghur slave labor to produce co uh, cotton products. Uh, and also the massive uh, industrial skill concentration camps are back with a little bit more sophistication, uh, technology supported surveillance, and also a new addition, which is enslavement of the Uyghurs. So uh, we back to where we started. So this is very important for audience to know that the Uyghur people have been going through decades-long uh, repression under the Chinese regime. And that begs the next question, Nuri. Why? Why is the Chinese government obsessed with I mean, th this really actually is a genocide. I, I read an article that was in the Irish Times and it's, they described it as one of the greatest humanitarian outrages of our time. W why, what is the obsession? Why is the Chinese government trying to eliminate the Uyghurs? To the Chinese government, this is essentially the, the, the key aspect of what is happening. And where does it hatred come from? Is there any legitimate threat or reason for the Chinese Communist Party to engage in genocidal uh, campaign against this vulnerable ethno-religious group? The short answer is no. This is uh, what the Chinese government uh, believes is a, a source of potential threat. 
So the Uyghurs' ethno-national identity have been perceived two ways. One, a sign of disloyalty. The communist ideology and the, the foreign religion, specifically the Christianity and Islam, are considered as a foreign religion to the Chinese. In some instances, they call it Western religion. So that Western religion brings home Western influence. The Western influence is free speech, free press, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion. So the Chinese naturally see these are uh, potentially a source of unrest that could undermine communist leadership. So their solution is to, in a sense, if not eliminate, then try to brainwash or try to force an education about themselves onto another people. Is this what's happening? That's one piece of the puzzle. And then the other uh, reason is, This is not that difficult uh, for your listeners. Communism and religion are incompatible. Communist ideology and religion, particularly Abrahamic religion, that Chinese labels as uh, foreign religion, are incompatible. And also, by definition, under the communist ideology, religious belief, way of life, as the Uyghurs have been living since 12th, 13th century in that part of the world, can be or have been perceived as a sign of disloyalty to the party. So one hand, the ethno-religious identity is perceived as a threat. And then the other hand, it's perceived as a disloyalty. And this threat and disloyalty combines becomes a, a, a poses an existential threat to the Chinese mindset. Therefore, they need to take a preemptive action to root it out and also, in the meantime, dehumanize this group of people. This is why the United States government, uh, specifically uh, both the Trump and Biden administration, called this as a genocide. Under the 1948 Genocide Convention, genocide occurs uh, when a specific acts are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethnical, racial, and religious group. So here, the intent uh, aspect is very important. So the intent uh, that the, the people still arguing today is essentially Chinese changing, destroying condition of life through a calculated method and systematic approach. So this is what is actually happening in China. So they don't show, as you pointed out, you know, the mass killing is not necessary to establish were called atrocity crimes as a genocide because oftentimes in Africa uh, during the Rwanda genocide, in, in Bosnia, in, uh, in, uh, in Syria, Iraq, uh, in the Yazidi genocide, the, the perpetrators usually don't show their intention. We only find out about their actions. So their intentions can be proven through the actions that they take in systematically, deliberately, to destroy the condition of life for the particular group. Here, the condition of life for the Uyghur people are their way of life, their religious practices, their language, culture. So as I profile profile in the book, they're specifically targeting the Uyghur woman through sexual violence in the camps, rape, gang rape, for example, forced sterilization. Even those who are in their mid-50s who had no plan to conceive Naturally, they may not be able to conceive, but the government is so scared, so fearful of potentially some woman carries God's gift, a a, a kid, a baby. They worry that it may happen, so they force sterilize mid-age woman. And then the other aspect under this is also meets the requirement of the genocide convention or definition of genocide 
forcible uh, separation of children from their parents. Based on the New York Times report, 800,000 to 1 million Uyghur children have been forcibly removed from their families and state and sent to state-run orphanages. And there's, there's another aspect, there's a very important aspect, which is deliberate, systematic, and purposeful prevention of natural pop, uh, growth of population. In 2015 through 2018, based on China's open source information, in just two counties in the Uyghur homeland, the population growth declined by 65%. In 2019 alone, it declined by 24%. This is why the United States government was so compelled. One, there is an intention to destroy in whole and part of the ethnic, religious, racial group. And then two, forcibly removing the children from their family. Three, purposeful, deliberate prevention of natural population growth. So those are the elements, legal elements of genocide. Therefore, myself and other advocates uh, for Uyghur rights, government agencies and experts have been comfortably calling this as a genocide. Nuri, it's, it's shocking as you were speaking there that you said 800,000 to 1 million. That, that, is, that is staggering. I mean, just removing one child from their parent and forcing them off to live on their own in a camp is too much, but one million. Put that in perspective, that's more than the people, the population of nation's capital at Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. has 750,000 people. So that's more than the, the population in nation's capital. Talking about separation from family, Nuri, I want to talk about your journey from, from home, the place you call home, to where you are now in the United States. Talk to us about how that journey happened, the decision you made to leave home and as a young man find yourself in the United States. It's been an honor to be part of this noble fight. It has been gratifying uh, experience advocating Uyghur rights uh, in the last um, 20 years has given me purpose in life. At the same time, it has been very costly a work for me. I came to the United States in 1995. From that time and up until today, I had been only able to spend 11 months with my uh, parents. My father passed away four months ago, uh, three months ago, um, while I was on an official trip to uh, Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and I was not able to attend my father's funeral and hold my mother, carry my father's casket, because I'm sanctioned by uh, Communist China last December. And I'm also sanctioned by Russia, Putin's Russia, this past May. I, I've been sanctioned by two of the worst human rights violators around the world. And also, I have not seen my mother since uh, my law school graduation in 2004. She came to attend my graduation in Washington, and I never thought that that would be the last time that I see her. So even things as basic as attending your loved one's funeral and pray and pay respect being taken away from me. So I live in this anguish, despair, disappointment, worry that my work may cause the lives of uh, my loved ones. It is, it's excruciatingly painful. I also mentioned um, in a few places uh, when I speak, when I do public speaking, that 
I used to not to enjoy holidays such as Thanksgiving, Christmas, because everyone goes to their parents, everyone goes to their homes, sit around table, pray, eat, catch up. I don't have that kind of luxury. I came here in 1995. I have not been back home since. And, and I will never be able to go home because I'm now sanctioned. So even though I'm an American citizen, now American official, uh, have a fulfilling career, have a beautiful family, I, I don't have the type of basic luxury to be able to hold your parents, take them to the hospital. I, I think that audience, uh, your audience, your listeners can appreciate how hard it can be for somebody who has a living, breathing parents with financial means, physical ability, and yet the Chinese uh, just to confiscate their passport for in retaliation against them for their son's uh, activities in the United States, political activities, human rights activities in the United States. So as an American citizen, I've been subject to transnational repression. Nuri, listening to you speak, I'm thinking about the title of your book that you called it No Escape. Do you feel like it wasn't just about no escape back in the concentration camps, but it's still about no escape today? I mean, you you were reappointed uh, recently as a commissioner for the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. That's a, you're a high-ranking official in the United States government. And yet still there seems to to be this sense of being imprisoned or caught up. Is that is that a sense that you still have? That is the kind of uh, feeling that I maintain. Because, you know, as an American citizen and now a U.S. official, um, I should not be worried about a foreign government, let alone a communist government, a repressive regime hovering over my head. When I do public speaking, when I give media interviews, this, what we're talking about is a brutal regime, as brutal as Putin's Russia. So it is hard. But at the end of the day, Ivan, we live once. We came to this world for purpose. Even if I do what I do at the expense of my loved ones to make the lives better for others, I accept it. I accept my, my religious teaching uh, my family background supports that notion that I'm willing to sacrifice, and I have, to be a voice for millions of voiceless people. And it's incredibly powerful and fulfilling that you lend your voice to people you don't even know, you have not met, and you're not related to other than your genetic connection, your cultural connection. So that that keeps me going. That gives me a purpose. You, you literally went straight into what I was thinking to ask you about how you keep going, you know, the, the sense of hope you have and the sense of commitment that you have. And that even though you wrote a book that is called No Escape, essentially, it's a book about letting the world know of what has happened to the Uyghurs, but more importantly, what you're doing about it. I felt I had no choice but to bring uh, the story of myself and, and those, uh, the stories of those who have been a direct victim of, uh, victims of the ongoing genocide. You know, somebody has to go out and tell stories. Storytelling is extremely important. And also what is more important is that we have, we are making progress. I came to the United States in mid-90s. Um, essentially no one knew of who the Uyghurs were. Even in my asylum application, I had a hard time to even find an evidence that the Uyghurs had been subject to 
various forms of human rights abuses. And today, not only that there are plenty of uh, information out there for public, but we also have some governmental actions. And what is important here is something that also remarkable about uh, the country that we call home, that the American public, American government officials in uh, halls of uh, federal agencies, halls of Congress, have done a lot of wonderful things, uh, showed policy responses without any PR firm, without any lobbying firm. The United States Congress passed two pieces of legislation with the unanimous consent in the Senate, more than 400 votes in, in the House. I advocated and included, I managed to uh, make some policy recommendations that are adopted in the actual bill. And also the administration side, the executive branch, have announced more than 100 punitive sanctions against the individuals and entities that are responsible for the ongoing genocide. So these kind of efforts require a lot of monetary and uh, individual investment. So this gives me hope. This gives me hope that the humanity is still alive. This gives me hope that the interface community the other uh, individuals, groups who have had different type of experience were subject to political repression, human rights abuses, uh, atrocity crimes, can personalize and can feel relate and lending their voices. I'm getting in my personal official capacity enormous amount of support from the interface community. For example, Notre Dame University, being a leading Catholic university in the United States, handed out its inaugural Religious Liberty Award to me to recognize the Uyghur suffering. Uh, in September, I'll be receiving an award from the Jewish World Watch that shows solidarity to the Uyghur suffering in light of Jewish people's own history, very similar uh, suffering during the Second World War. So these kind of positive things and my ability to speak to incredible activists, advocates like yourself, sharing my stories all around the world, in Africa, Middle East, Asia, Europe, it gives me hope that we will be able to not uh, not only uh, tell Uyghur stories or do to spread the word, but also force policymakers, uh, politicians, to take the necessary action to not only stop this genocide, but also help us to prevent the next genocide. Nuri, you know, to someone listening, they, they, they will find your story, your journey, your accomplishments remarkable. And I guess the question I, I want to ask is your sense of resilience. Do you find that that can be applied to what people find themselves going through in other parts of the world? Maybe even here in the United States, where sometimes people feel a sense of a, a loss of hope or a sense of, you know, their, their democracy is, is not what it used to be, or they're not happy with the way their country is being governed. Just from your, your own page, to the American public whom you have become a part of, what would you lend from those pages to say, listen, this is, this is the way you ought to look at things? Absolutely. Uh, to, there are two ways to address that. One, when you face repression, when you face a brutal regime, uh, authoritarian dictatorship, they all share something very similar. They're fearful of their own citizens, fearful of their own people. And they're in the business of dehumanizing you. They're in the business of telling you or making the case that no one cares about you. They're in the business of, and being in most cases successful, of making those people who have been subject to repression, abuses, to feel hopeless. So 
I always remind myself something this remarkable leader said in an op-ed that he wrote in 2018. Late Senator John McCain said, the hope is the best weapon against oppression. I live by that every day and I'm, I'm seeing the benefit of it. So when, 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 when you give up saying, oh, nothing is going my way, when you give up suggesting that human rights was a, work is a thankless work, you sacrifice more but gain a little. I think that's actually nicely tunes into the, the, the regime or individuals trying to take away your natural rights, your liberty. So we should go against them. And then the, the, the other aspect that is very important and applicable to all of us who are working in the human rights space is that we should be refused to be subjugated and refuse to be dehumanized. During the process of advocating for the Uyghur people uh, in the last five, six years, specifically since the current genocidal action started, I have had the fortune to meet and work with Holocaust survivors. One common theme that I, I, I was able to hear from them is staying hopeful and refuse to be dehumanized. And this is applicable. It's not that difficult. So once you let yourself slide down the hill, this actually benefits those who try to dehumanize you, trying to make you feel little. We're not feel little. We're, we are bigger than them. We're much more powerful than them. So this kind of small things I applied and I follow and it's working for me. You know, Nuri, listening to you, I am intrigued by that ability to stay hopeful and to refuse to be dehumanized. Those are, those are powerful, powerful words. I'm going to ask you about what you see in the United States democracy that is valuable to Americans and that they should cherish and that they should uh, protect, in a sense. Because I think sometimes some people feel like it's all gone, it's all wasted, there's nothing left. But what would your, what would your response to that, uh, to that be? Democracy is the best system that worth fighting for. Democracy is, is a process, it's not the destiny. Democracy needs to be protected, democracy needs to be perfected. So democracy always faces uh, ups and downs. Uh, that makes it unique because it constantly needs to be reviewed, protected, and followed. We are globally going through a very difficult period. There is a setback and backsliding in democratic process for two reasons that um, I think this is happening. One, there are disappointment in our uh, governments, uh, bureaucratic system, and leadership quality. Today, it's hard to find a leader in a democratic liberal democracies that we can look up to. During the, for example, during the Cold War, uh, maybe 1980s, 90s, the international community had leaders, not only one leader, leaders in liberal democracies that we could look up to in Europe, here at home. That is lacking right now. It's hard to find one leading democratic leader around the world. Arguably, you can say Joe Biden, or arguably you can say others in Europe, but they're not the type of leader that we used to have to be able to rally. For example, Ronald Reagan, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Helmut Kohl, so we don't have that. I mean, there's a leadership vacuum uh, around the world. Uh, I'm not suggesting that our president is not doing a job. He's trying the best he can under the circumstance. And then the other uh, reason that uh, we're having these challenges in our strive for, strive for democratic freedom, uh, struggle to preserve democracy, uh, countries, regimes like uh, the one in Moscow and Beijing, 
They're doing a better job buying a silence, distorting democratic norms, destroying rule space in the national system, actively engaging disinformation campaign to confuse the voters, uh, spreading lies, engaging in character assassination of decent human beings. And the despots and dictatorial regimes around the world find a great market in those endeavors uh, coming out of uh, Beijing and Moscow. So the existing the democratic system and communities of democracies are not matching that perfect storm, that aggressive uh, campaign waged by Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China. This is why I always advocate that we should stop worrying about them. That's what they do. But we should focus on what we can do within our capabilities as a democratic society, as a Democrats with small t. We have to improve ourselves. We have to get our house in order. We have to do better so that we will have a moral authority to be the leader. So, so are we having a difficult period? Absolutely, yes. Are we going to be able to survive this? I definitely say yes. The history does not repeat itself. We allow history to repeat. So this is one of the uh, instances, one of the occasions. I think the citizens of the democratic societies are not doing their dues and letting history to repeat. Nuri, I, I want to go back to what is probably my kind of final question as we come to the end of our conversation today. And you've told us so much about your journey and the fight that you're engaged in and the work that you were doing. I always want to find out how you pass this on to your children. Not so much the work, but the story. How do you, how do you tell your children about what happened to you, what happened to your people, their people? And, and, and how do you deal with the way that they receive it when they, when they know what has happened or what is happening to their people? A couple of years ago, my uh, then four years old son, um, standing behind me, looking at that picture that you see at my law school graduation with mom and dad, the one over there, asking me who they were. Um, and, and I told them, they are your grandparents. And then he looked around and looked puzzled, uh, asked me, how come he never met them? And I could not answer that question. And then he followed, like, when can I meet them? And what do I tell them? And I tried to explain to him, in the simplest term, I told him that they are far away. And in, uh, his question is, can we go? And I can't tell him I cannot go. Like, it's difficult. It's impossible to answer that question. So, and now he's six. Uh, he's much more um, uh, sensible about his surroundings. When my uh, uh, galley copy arrived at my house, he was so proud and holding my book. I have pictures of him uh, holding my book. And he just looked at me saying, well, I'm proud of you. I'm a six-year-old kid. And I said, this is for you, son. And then I flipped the pages and opened the acknowledgement page and then explained to him, look, once you grow up, when you read this, you would appreciate what your father gone through. And you would appreciate why your father was not around in evenings and weekends uh, in the past two years. Uh, he was working on this book project. And importantly, once you grow up, when you read this, you would know why your father was so consumed in something that is so horrific. And you will also know why you're not been able to meet your grandparents. My, my father passed away three months ago, and my son will never, ever have a chance to meet him. So, so what I tell him also... Uh, is a sports enthusiast, uh, very despite his young age. And I told him recently, some brand names cannot come to our house. 
the brand global brands have been implicated in the ongoing enslavement of the Uyghurs, uh, Coca-Cola, uh, Nike, Adidas, some of the clothes specifically as being somebody who is very physically active. Yeah. He likes to go to uh, Adidas uh, store to get his shoes, soccer shoes. And he likes to go to Nike store to get his jersey. So he, he was listening to me. So we switched to a different store. So gradually, because of his young age, I want him to understand my life story through small things that I can explain to him in the terms that he can understand. So I'm blessed to have a, a family, even despite their young age, they seem to understand, seem to appreciate his father's pain. I have to appreciate the extraordinariness of the life that you've lived and hearing you talk about your son and having to have a conversation with him that there are certain brands of clothes that we cannot or have in this home because those have been produced through slave labor of our people. Is not a, that's not a conversation that a regular family has um, in this part of the world. And yet, and yet you do that. And I think it speaks more and more to the fact that you, you do see an escape for your children and for future generations of Uyghurs who will rebound despite what they're going through right now, because that is the nature of hope, as you said earlier on, the nature of hope. And I mean, this is a people group who are being systematically eliminated through some of the most evil ways that you've mentioned. And I want to take a moment to appreciate that moment of having a conversation with your son about your book, about what you've compiled, is really an expression of the hope and the refusal that you mentioned earlier on, the refusal to be pushed down and to be, to be oppressed. I want to ask you to leave us with just one more thought about uh, how you see the Uyghur people coming out of this. What is in your heart? What is your dream? I am an optimist by nature, uh, Ivan. I have to be brutally direct and, and, and frank that this regime has managed to break the spirit of a certain percentage of the population. Even a significant number of the people who have sacrificed their lives. But on the flip side, the international community woke up to this brutal regime through its genocidal policies through upending democracy in Hong Kong, through daily threat against this democratic nation, Taiwan. The Uyghur people have sacrificed for humanity, but for the betterment of the world, the future, uh, for the future generation, including my own kids, I genuinely believe that the international community is starting to wake up, facing to this brutal reality. More than 80 global brand, uh, brands have been implicated or tainted uh, in the ongoing enslavement of the Uyghur people, that in a way, essentially, the global consumer community is feeding the ongoing genocide. The investors uh, around the world feeding the tech authoritarianism, not only being used in China, but now metastasizing around the world. Feckless leaders around the world uh, kowtowing to the CCP regime and adopting their model of uh, governance. That, to me, is really, really big concern. Nuri Tukel, thank you so much for being with us here today, for allowing us to, in a sense, remove some of the band-aids on wounds that try to heal and sometimes that won't heal, and, and just allowing us to journey through your life and your, your story. 
Thank you so much, Nuri, for being with us here today. Thank you, Ivan. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, despite the grim and distressful nature of the topic and the issues. We will overcome. Thank you so much. Nuri's story and that of the Uyghur people is about trying to find an escape from being exterminated, and that's a fact. But it's undeniably about standing your ground and figuring out how to survive. Running through Nuri's narrations is this theme of, as he says, refusing to be oppressed. I feel like that refusing to be oppressed or standing your ground has more to do with looking inside yourself to find the relief that only you can offer yourself than it is about expecting the thing that is chasing you to stop. Most of what we spend our lives running from never stops chasing us. And if it does, it's often replaced with something else. Here's the take home. At some point, we have to stop and say, okay, I'm done running and I'm done losing sleep over this. And I'm going to walk at my pace and deal with things in ways that I have the capacity for. I'm not going to be pushed to run faster because the escape I'm looking for is really to just stop running from it all. That's what Nuri did, and that's what he continues to do. Thanks for listening today, and uh, share this with somebody who needs it. Join us again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.